Galatians chapter 5, please. As you turn there, I, I hope that you meditate on the words that we sing. I, I, I hope, my prayer is that we don't, as a congregation, just, just repeat the words that are on the screen. Um, one of the things I think that what, where many Christians or people who claim to be Christians are at, I don't think many of them actually believe that they were enemies of God at one time. I mean, we just saying that multiple times. And I think it, it's revolutionary to our understanding of our Savior and our relationship with Him when we actually truly believe not just accepted as a theological fact imposed upon us, but we actually believe that we, before Christ, were enemies of God. That's a sobering thought to me. And I love that song that we were saying. It's one of my favorite songs. As we're singing, uh, my daughter leaned over to me and like, Dad, this is my favorite song. You know, it was one of mine too. Um, it is packed with theological truth. And so I pray, my, my prayer is that when we sing these songs together, that we're actually thinking about them and we're believing them. And the Spirit of God is using them to change us and to minister to our, our souls. And that's why we sing out, because you're being a preacher during the, that time. You're proclaiming truth during that time to everybody else and ministering to other people. So I appreciate your singing, and I appreciate how you sing out. I appreciate the, the musicians who practice, and, and, and then they, they serve us this way every Sunday. And I pray that, it's, that that's an important part of the service to you. Galatians 5 is where I've asked you to turn. Uh, this is page 975, if you use one of the Bibles provided for you there. This is the last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to be looking at this week as we finish this sermon series. Then we're going to launch into a new sermon series. Uh, you asked for it. Uh, several of you submitted ideas of topics and things like that, maybe difficult passages or, or different topics that you would like to be uh, to have addressed in our next sermon series. So thank you, first of all, for everyone who gave uh, your suggestions, and we had more suggestions than we had uh, slots, and so we're actually planning another one in 2018. So Keep sending them, uh, and we'll just put them in the queue for uh, the next time we do this. But uh, we really uh, appreciate that. So we're looking forward to launching that next week. Um, I believe the first one, yes, the first one that we're, I'm going to speak on is, uh, is on, on the topic of heaven. Uh, someone asked me to, uh, I think it was Kathy Helgeson asked me to, to speak about heaven. And what does that look like? What do we know about heaven? Um, and so, because I think, and I think this is where Kathy was coming from, is that many times people have the wrong idea what heaven is. And what, is it something to truly look forward to? I confess that there was, there was plenty of times in my life where I thought, particularly as a teenager, you know, I, I'm glad I'm going to heaven, but it was, I was only glad I was going to heaven because I wasn't going to hell. And there was really nothing that was, I was looking forward to about heaven. In fact, if I was going to be brutally honest, it sounded extraordinarily boring to me. Um, do we have an eternity of boredom 
that is awaiting us. But yet it's better than hell, okay? Is that what we're looking forward to? So we'll get into that next week. I won't preach that sermon now. We'll, I got to do this one first. So, but let's pray. Father, as we go to this text, I pray that your word would speak to us. I pray that your spirit would remove distractions, and I pray that your spirit would give us focus and use your word to influence our souls. Father, we are people, like Psalm 42 said, that we are, are, are panting for living water. And we know, Jesus, you said, if anyone comes to me, I will give them water, and they will never thirst again. And so we long to have our satisfaction in Christ. And so as we come to this text, as we look at what your word has for us, would your spirit minister to our souls right now? In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Galatians was a book that Paul wrote to, it was a group of, of believers. Galatia was a region. It wasn't a city. It was a region. And so uh, Paul was writing to the churches that made up uh, this region here. And he was trying to instruct them. And he had ministered to these areas before, was instrumental in many of these churches starting. And he had great relationships with them. But as I've said before, as you know, that they had very quickly moved away from the centrality of Christ or the exclusivity of Christ in their salvation. They had said Christ is a good component to it, but yet Moses' law, we still must uphold and we must keep all the rules and regulations in order for us to have salvation. So yes, Jesus, his work was good and what he did was good, but we also got to keep this. And the reality is, is that you and I know that Jesus is an exclusive gospel, okay? And so it's only through Jesus Jesus Christ, and it's through the work that he did, and, and the point of the law was to show us that we couldn't measure up, to show us that we would, be, we would need someone to forgive us all the time. This is the reason why they had their sacrificial systems and things like that back then was because they needed, a, they needed forgiveness. They needed uh, uh, someone to, a way for their sins to be covered or atoned is a theological word. And so this is what Paul was dealing with here. And so in chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that so quickly you've removed from this. I mean, these were the, these, these first century Christians. These were the people that were, that, were, that were following first after Christ. And then it became very quickly that they moved away from this. And it was to the point where he said in chapter 4, he says, I, I feel like I've labored over you in, in vain. He said, I, I don't know why. He says, you, know, you loved me so much and you, you, were, you were ministering to me and you were accepting the gospel that I was preaching to you. He said that, that you would have tore out your eyes, if you will. And that seems kind of weird that he would bring that up. But a lot of times people think that one of the things that Paul struggled with was poor eyesight. Uh, some theologians say that that was a result of the blindness that he received on the road to Damascus when he became Christ. Now, his sight was restored, but they think that possibly he struggled with having eyesight, a good eyesight for the rest of his life. One of the letters, he says, see how large of a letter I've written with my own hand here. It's an indication, indicator of his poor eyesight. And so here, he says, you would have tore out your eyes and given to me. Basically, he said, you have good eyes. You can see everything, and I have these poor eyes, but you would have given me your eyes. But now, have I become an enemy because I've spoken truth to you? So there's this very move, moving time in Paul's life here, and he, these people he loves so much, and they're moving away from the gospel, and he comes to the conclusion here in chapter 16. 
He says this, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says you want to know how to live. It's not by a law. It's not by keeping a whole bunch of laws. You have to follow the Spirit. He says for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, verse 17, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes in and he talks about a bunch of different types of uh, works of the flesh that are there. And then he gives the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. He says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so we've looked at all parts of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit here, and today we're looking at this idea of self-control, the last one. So let me ask you this. What do you think of when you hear the words self-control? What comes to your mind? Maybe it's a story, you know, of someone that was very disciplined and maybe their athletic achievements or something like that. Maybe it's um, uh, the thought of the current diet that you are on or whatever and the amount of self-control needed. What comes to your mind? Well, for me, a couple of pictures come to mind I want to share with you. First of all, there's a picture of, of something like that, you know, that comes to my mind. You know, the level is excruciating, self-control. And not just to pick on the cats, we have one more that comes to my mind. <laughs> that is self-control, okay? You see dog, you ever see these, the picture of a dog and they got like a milk bone on its nose? And they're like, wait, 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 wait. And then it eats the, the, the when the, the, the guy gives the command for it. I always wonder what the dog's thinking. The dog probably has to be thinking, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> Why is he doing this? You know, um, self-control. I mean, you know, I, 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 I've read different things about self-control. Uh, like one, is, one place I've read said this, you never know how little self-control you have until you have a basket of chips and some salsa in front of you at a Mexican restaurant. Uh, it's so true. It is so true. I don't even like salsa. <laughs> and I just inhale this stuff because I'm so hungry. I also read, I don't have another screen, but I also read someplace talking about, imagine the amount of self-control the workers of a bubble wrap factory have. <laughs> that is incredibly amount of self-control. What is this what Paul's talking about here? Is this what Paul's talking about that, that you know, that Paul sits down in a Mexican restaurant and he's just like, okay, if you're, if you're living by the Spirit, you're not going to have a chip, all right? Is that what he says? Uh, you know, when you get the box from Amazon and the bubble wrap, and you look and you hold it, and you're like, no. Is that what he's talking about? Well, the, the self-control that Paul is talking about here spans really every category of life. And we're going to look at uh, this idea of self-control, and it's one of those things where I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time defining it. I think we understand what is commonly meant by self-control, and this is what Paul meant by it. It's a very common understanding of it. But I want to point out two truths that we can infer from this whole idea that Paul says that a fruit of the Spirit, an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, is self-control. 
And so there's just two points this morning. The first one is this, is that, that our need of for self-control demonstrates our fallen condition, okay? The fact that you have, you and I are told that we need to have self-control as a work of the Spirit of God in our life points to the fact, demonstrates the fact, that we are fallen. Remember I said just a few minutes ago when I started that we really need to embrace the reality that at one time every person is an enemy of God. And so if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, then that is no longer you. We're now seated at the table and we sing, Jesus, thank you for that. But if you're not a believer in Christ, if you haven't repented of your sin, the Bible makes it very clear that you are an enemy of God. Because the reason is every person is born in the fallen condition. Now, that seems incredibly unfair because you say, I, you mean you tell me that I was born as a sinner? And the fact is, yes. I know I've shared the story with you before, but I remember at a former ministry, doing a children's ministry, we were outside in the parking lot, and a mother came up to me, and, and she was new to the church, and she said, you know, I really like your church, but the reality is I, there's some doctrinal things I just can't understand and I don't agree with. I said, well, hey, let's have this conversation. What are those things? And she said, the reality that you, or, or the, 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 the teaching that you have that everyone is born a sinner. She said, you know, I look at these infants and these little babies, and they're so innocent. And I say, how in the world could you say that this baby is a sinner and an enemy of God? And I said, well, (laughs) you know, let's have the child grow a year or two and have a sibling and put one toy in the room, and you will see that sin nature come out. I said, did you, let me ask you a question. I said, you have children. I said, at what point did you sit your child down and say, you know what, there's going to be a situation in life where there's going to be something that's going to be, you're going to be in an uncomfortable situation, and the best way for you to look good in it is to lie. And here's the best way to lie. And you gave instructions on how to lie. She says, well, I never did that. Of course I didn't do it. I said, do your children lie? She said, well, sure. I said, where does that come from? And so we had this discussion about are people naturally born sinners? But I understand where she's coming from in some ways. I understand. It seems incredibly unfair. Because, I mean, Adam and Eve, I mean, a long time ago, I've never even met these people, and they said they had one rule to keep, and they couldn't keep it. And in Romans chapter 5, makes it very clear. Because Adam sinned, death entered the world, and death passed upon all men. All have sinned. It seems incredibly unfair that one of my ancestors did something wrong, and now I am born under a curse. But Romans 5 also continues and says, but by the obedience of one, many were made righteous. And so the reality is that the fact that Paul says, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, says that self-control is something that you have to have the Spirit of God work in your life in order for you to truly have across your life. The fact of the matter that that is there, it speaks to the fact that we are sinful people and that we have a fallen condition. And so self-control is a human need. It's a human need. God does not have to have self-control. Okay, because the Bible makes it very clear that God is not tempted to sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. And so there is no temptation for God to sin. 
Now, we could make the argument that Jesus in his humanity withstood temptations and he did it perfectly. In fact, the Bible is very clear about that. It says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. This is the mystery of what's called the incarnation. This is the mystery of this, this, uh, this, this uh, God, Jesus being 100% God and 100% man while he was on earth, okay? And so he has this, 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 this beautiful mystery. But God, as in his nature, as in eternity past, God the Father does not have to exercise self-control because he's not tempted to sin. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says God never lies. And so we see over and over again an affirmation that God is not a God who sins. And so therefore he does not need self-control. So it's a human need. But here's a point I wanted to bring out, and you're going to be like, well, duh. Here's the second point under this point is that self-control is hard, okay? Self-control is incredibly difficult. Think about how many sins would be completely avoided if we had perfect self-control. What about anger? How many times have you heard your voice saying something out of anger and you knew that it was wrong you absolutely knew it was wrong but anger overruled that moment the desire to hurt that other person or to prove your point or to prove your your how you are correct or whatever the situation is overruled everything else in that moment anger or what about hitting something or throwing something? You see, we're all tempted to sin. I mean, think of how many sins are, would be avoided if we had perfect self-control. What about, what about things that we say not just out of anger, but what about slander? What about gossip? What about how we communicate on social media? One of the things that I, I'm just heartbroken about, and I don't mean to keep harping on this, and I know Wayne talked about it a little bit in Sunday school, but is how Christians communicate in public forums, how Christians communicate in a way that is completely unloving. Uh, one of the reasons why I just refuse, almost refuse, to get any type of theological discourse or any argument on Facebook anymore is because how quickly it degenerates. I mean, the, the, the personal attacks that come out immediately, and it's by Christians. I mean, all of a sudden, someone disagrees, and they'll say, all of a sudden, name-calling, you're an idiot, and things like that. What are we, five years old on the playground? But yet, there's no self-control. And I think that the anonymity that online communication gives us, or the ability to hide behind a computer screen, actually is revealing what's in people's hearts. Lack of self-control. Slander, gossip, what about sexual sin? Self-control, if, you, if we had complete self-control, then there would be no sexual sins, right? Online viewing, emotional attachments, whatever the case may be. What about abuse, whether physical, emotional, psychological, sexual? If we had self-control, there would be no abuse. If we had complete self-control, there would be no time where we would, we would see people uh, uh, or hear stories of people uh, uh, physically assaulting people or trying to control them in, uh, in an emotional or psychological way because they would be self-controlled. What about um, laziness? 
If you're self-controlled, you wouldn't be tempted to be lazy or the opposite end of the spectrum. Be a workaholic. If you're self-controlled, there wouldn't be tempted there. What about gluttony, eating too much? This is something that, uh, you know, we Christians don't talk a lot about, but it's, it's something that we really need to. I know it's something that I'm constantly evaluating in my life because I make that, I cross that line too much. I mean, when food is super good, you know, it's hard to have self-control sometimes. But this is what Paul's talking about. And evidence of the Spirit is that the ability to say no. We spend so many times, so much time when their kids are little telling them not to say no, that then when they get older, um, then we got to tell them to start saying no. Because of self-control. And so my point in bringing up all these things is that I want you to realize that this speaks to fact that you and I need to look at this text of Scripture and say, yep, self-control is something that I should be working on. And everyone here is. That speaks to our fallen condition. It speaks to the fact that we um, uh, uh, have a need there. But we need to understand that concerted effort isn't enough. And this is the reason why, the, this is the reason why it's so hard to have self-control is because it's, it, concerted effort just isn't enough. I mean, you can get disciplined in one area of your life, and I know some people who are super disciplined and maybe they're exercise or they're eating or something like that. But the reality is no one is completely self-controlled in all areas of their life because of the sin nature of it within us. And so this, it, it, this is why we need mercy every day. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so this is the reason why we need, one of the reasons why we need mercy every day, because self-control is incredibly hard and concerted effort on your part isn't enough. I have started so many different exercise routines and diets that I don't even know. Not really diets. Who am I kidding? But I've started so many exercise routines, okay, that uh, um, it, it's frustrating that you cannot stay consistent with it. Okay, I can't stay consistent with it. You know, things of this life come up. I mean, there's other things that you need to do besides exercise, like anything, okay? You know, it's like, you know, just, you know, by the way, the idea of a fun run makes no sense to me, okay? I'm just going to put that out there, all right? It's an oxymoron, okay? We need God's mercy every day because self-control is something we struggle with. Whether it's food, whether it's sexual temptation, whether it's, it's exercise, whether it's the way we use our mouths and our words, or whether it's our thoughts, or whether it's our attitude towards other people, whatever the case may be, we need self-control. And the fact that you and I, every person here, needs it speaks, to, that it speaks to our fallen condition. And it's hard. But I have a second point. And the second point is this, is that our potential for self-control demonstrates our wonderful salvation. And we can make it personal, our wonderful Savior. It's the fact that we're commanded to do this, the fact that we're commanded to have this, the fact that this is simply saying that, listen, walk by the Spirit. You will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Here's the fruit of the Spirit, and this is what can be. It's verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so he's saying, listen, the Spirit of God is inside you. It's giving you, it's sustaining your life, and he is sustaining your life. And so you need to walk by him. And so he's got the, 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 the roadmap for you. And one of the ways for you to live your life is through self 
self-control, he says there. So it is possible. So the reality is that we have a potential to live self-control even though we have a sin nature inside of us. And the only way that it's possible is not through concerted effort on your part. It's not through self-discipline. It's through our wonderful salvation that's found only in Jesus Christ. And so the fact here that he says this is possible to me makes me want to stop and say, what kind of God do I have here? What kind of salvation do I have that he can transform me into someone that actually can have self-control? Someone who, that, who can do and can keep my actions in check. Now, not perfectly, but that, that is something that I, can, that I desire after and I work towards. And remember, all these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit here, what he's saying here is he's not saying that you're going to have perfect love and perfect joy and perfect peace and perfect long-suffering and gentleness. He's, saying, he's not saying you're going to have that perfectly in this life, but he says your heart, your heart is going to long for these things. And the Spirit of God is going to move you to work towards these things by his power. And that's what you need. And the fact that we have the potential to do that speaks to the fact that God has done a wonderful transforming work in our lives if you're a believer in Christ. And, and this is the thing that we just cannot gloss over. And, and, and this is the reason why salvation and following Jesus Christ is so much more. It is so much more than just making sure you don't spend eternity in hell. We're talking about life transformation here. And we're talking about marks that show people, that people can see that you are a changed individual. And the reason why people need to see that, Matthew gives us the reason in Matthew chapter 5. He says, so will people will see your good works and do what? Glorify your God who is in heaven. And so you got to ask yourself, is God working in your heart on these areas? Do you have a desire for self-control? Do you have a desire to keep your speech in check? Do you have a desire to make sure that when you're posting online that you're thinking how it will be perceived and thinking about how that there is a human being with feelings and emotions that is going to be reading that post? Do you think about those things? That's the transforming work of the Spirit. And that's what we need to be longing for and asking God to be at work in our lives individually and as our church. And so, self-control, as I've said before, is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a sign of a transformed life. It's a sign of being a true follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus sent the Spirit, he says. And he says he's going to do several things. One of the things that he said that he was going to do, he was going to guide us into all truth. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it clear that the Spirit of God indwells inside of you. What an incredible thing. What a wonderful, transforming salvation work that God has done for us. And when that Spirit is indwelling inside of you, then He's going to move us to long for these things. And He's going to move us to guide us into truth. And the Bible, Jesus also says that then He will speak of me and will glorify me. And so this is what the Spirit of God does, is it moves us in a spot where we say, I am not satisfied with just being concerned about my own wants and desires of the moment. Because isn't that what the lack of self-control is? I'm only concerned about my needs in this moment and what I want right now. And so as God is transforming us, this wonderful salvation, it's not, it's not just so that you don't have to go to hell. It's not just so that God can kind of put another check mark up in heaven and say, got another one. This is not like this big fishing derby that God is in and saying, oh, got another one here. No, he is saving people for the reason of transforming them so that then they can bring glory to him. 
So if you're a follower of Christ, you've got to ask yourself, why? Why? Is it to bring glory to God? Or is it just to get something in the end? And the Bible says that the Spirit of God, if to those true believers, is working in us to bring glory to God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is possible for the follower of Christ. And I wanted to reiterate that because that speaks to the transforming work. And so it is indeed possible for you to have self-control. And like I said, it won't be perfect this side of heaven, but true disciples long for self-control and work towards it in the power of the Spirit. I wanted to give you an example of self-control from the Scriptures. I want us to think about it just for a second. And the person, the first person that came to my mind was Joseph. Okay? So here's a picture, the artist rendition. Obviously, uh, someone wasn't there when that was taken. Um, Some of you were pretty close, uh, but you were born just after this happened. But um, no one was there here currently. And so here is the picture in Joseph's life that there's a, there's a segment that's happening here, that this is Potiphar's wife, okay? Now, Joseph had risen in ranks after he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was, uh, you know, lots of things were happening, but here he was, he had risen up in ranks, he's in Potiphar's house, he's in charge of so many things, and uh, his master was away, and he was in the house doing uh, what he needed to do, and uh, Potiphar's wife came to him and was saying, hey, come sleep with me. Now, it's interesting. If you read Genesis 39, that's where you would find the stories in Genesis 39. If you read this story, you will find that this happened. This wasn't just one time. Sometimes I think we think that this was like one time where he was out you know, in the courtyard or wherever he was at. She comes and says, hey, I want you to sleep with me. And he's like, no. And then that's the end of it. No. The Bible makes it very clear that this happened day after day after day. So I want you to file that away, okay? The second thing I want you to think about is the fact that this was Potiphar's wife, Okay. She, I mean, Potiphar could, could really have any woman that he wanted. So it, is, it stands to reason she was a very powerful woman. She was a very attractive woman. So we have this very powerful, very attractive woman that's coming to Joseph every day, day after day. Read in Genesis 39. Day after day after day, she's coming to him and, and basically throwing herself at him, enticing him to come and, and, and have a, a, a sexual relationship with her. And Joseph, he says, no. Now, that is an incredible amount of self-control. He had the opportunity. He had the means. He had motivation, even. I mean, there was all these things where he could have definitely gone down that road. And he said, no. How in the world could he do that? How is it possible that he was able to say no? This was not a situation where, you know, as I I said, where where Joseph just looked at her and said, you know, uh, I think of you as a sister, okay? (laughs) Or you're not my type or something. This was someone that was very tempting. And he said no. Here's the reason why I think he could say no. And that is this, that love is the most powerful motivator in making decisions. 
The second is probably fear. People make decisions out of love, and they will make decisions that they would, they would do things that they never would ever do in any other circumstance. People in, in dangerous situations throwing their bodies over their children so that their children live. I remember as a kid, we were camping, and we got word that there was a plane crash in the Detroit area. It was Northwest. I don't know if you remember that airline back in the day, Northwest Flight 255. It was flying over, and it had just gone, uh, just taken off, actually, and, and, it, and it crashed, and uh, there was one survivor. And that survivor was a little girl, and the reason why she survived is because her mother literally surrounded her and protected her in the crash. I remember we were coming back from camping, and I remember uh, we were going to pass by the crash site. We were going to drive right past it. I remember my dad saying, we're not going to be able to see anything. It's just going to be probably burnt grass or something like that. But when we got there, the investigation was still on, and I'll never forget seeing the wreckage all over that place and then thinking about there was one survivor because her mother loved her. We can think of many examples of how love makes us do something that we never would do before. Let's go a little bit less serious. What about the adolescent boy who finally realizes girls aren't that bad, okay? And he is just, he wants to proclaim his love to this young girl. He will do some crazy things to do that. He will make himself look foolish to do that. He will change his appearance. He will do whatever because he thinks he loves this person. He will do, and, and people in the name of love do things that they never would do anymore because I think love is the most powerful motivator. Now, why am I going down this road? Because why, we raised the question, how was Joseph able to have such self-control in a very tempting moment? And the answer is because he loved someone more than the temptation and the benefits that the temptation would give. And the reason why I know that, because if you read in Genesis 39, you would see that when Joseph responds to Potiphar's wife, he says, how can I sin against my master and how can I sin against my God? You see, he loved his God, and he loved his God so much more, and his God, and God's word so much more that that was gave him the ability to say, "I am going to say no to this because I love God more than I love what these possible temptations were." So Joseph was able to show self control because he loved someone and something more than what the temptation offered. And the same is true for us. Paul says that the path to self control is through the Spirit of God. I've already mentioned that the Spirit of God will guide us in the truth and point us to Jesus. And so, if we truly love God, the Spirit will use that to guide us into self-controlled decisions. But how do you know if you love God? How do you know if you love God like this? And I think one way is to test how you view His Word. You see, the world looks at God's Word as restrictive, as hurtful, as old-fashioned, or even obsolete. However, the man after God's own heart loves God. God's Word. So here's what I want to do in the last couple minutes that we have in the message. I want you to go to Psalm 119, please. This is page 512, Psalm 119. Page 512, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. 
This last week, I walked through Psalm 119. Now, when people think of Psalm 119, they think of a few things, but usually the first thing they think of is that it's the longest psalm. It's the longest, if you will, chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Some of you may have little headings over uh, before verse 1, before verse uh, 9, and before verse 17. They may say Aleph, Beth, Gimel. These are the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So if you read those and your Bible happens to have those, that's the Hebrew alphabet. And what this is, is this is a, this, this isn't a beautiful acrostic. I mean, this is a piece of literature that people, not just Christians, have studied because of how complex and how beautiful this is. Here's the reason why. If you look at verses 1 through 8, okay, it's not going to come out in English. But if we were going to read this in the original Hebrew, we would understand that verses 1 through 8 all begin with the letter Aleph, okay? And then verses 9 through 16 all begin with the letter Beth. And so we would see that all throughout this, this is an acrostic of the um, Hebrew alphabet, where David is writing this beautiful masterpiece. But more than that, even more than that, most of these verses, 176 verses, most of them uh, are dealing with God's Word. And so what I want us to do, I just want to see, I want, you, I, want, I want us to walk us through this. I want to point out a few verses, and so I'm just going to give you the number, and you can look at it, and I'll read the section that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to draw your attention to. But I want you to see how David view, viewed God's laws, okay? His laws, the rules that he had to follow. Look at verse 7. It says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will praise you when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 14, it says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. So he's using different words for God's word, his law, testimonies, precepts, several different words he's using, but it's all talking about the same thing. God's revealed revelation to him. He's saying that it, he delights in him as much as all riches. So if you were given a check for you know, $10 million, how would your heart rejoice? David's saying that his heart rejoices when he reads God's word and God's revelation to him. His heart rejoices just as much, if not more, than that. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. Verse 18, I may hold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 20, with a longing, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Can you say you long for God's rules? This doesn't seem to make sense to us, but David here says, I long for God's rules. Rules. Look at verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. My delight, he says. Look at verse 35. Lead me in the paths of your commands, your commandments, for I delight in it. I delight when you give me commands, he's saying. Verse 39, he says, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Verse 43, my hope is in your rules, it says there. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. When I think of your rules, God gives comfort to my soul. Verse 68, 
You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 71, it was good for me when I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Verse 77, at the end it says, your law is my delight. Verse 81, I hope in your word. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 104, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. 131, I long for your commandments. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true, but your commandments, verse 143, are my delight. Verse 147, I hope in your words. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word. Verse 163, I love your law. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. I praise you for your rules that you've given to me. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise for you. Teach me your statutes. My tongue, continuing 172, will sing at your word, for all your, command, your commandments are right. And then 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. You know, you walking through that, you see, you get a glimpse of why he was called a man after God's own heart, because David understood. David understood that he loved God's law. He loved the rules. Did you notice that several times he says, I love the rules that you've given to me. Now, that is a hard thing, because that doesn't make sense sometimes, because we feel that rules are always restrictive, and you say, we can't do this, God, and we shouldn't do this, God. Why is it that you're telling me that I need to be self-controlled? But David had a different perspective on this, because he loved 
loved someone and something more than anything else on this earth. And when he was writing this, and this was his heart, he says, I love God. And the reason why is because he knew that God was good. And he knew that any rule that God would impose upon you and would impose upon me would be for my good. And so if we're bucking against God's rules, if we're bucking against God's word, it's because we're doubting whether or not God is good. But see, Joseph was able to say no to temptation because he loved God more than the temptation. You and I will be able to live self-controlled lives when we love God more than we love anything else in this world. And so I pray that we're like David and we say, I love your law. I love you. And so when I'm tempted to look at things I shouldn't look at, What's going to keep me from clicking or what's going to keep me from looking at whatever I shouldn't be looking at is not fear of losing my marriage or fear of losing my job, although those are, those, are good, those are good motivators. But many pastors do lose their marriages and lose their jobs. What's going to keep me self-controlled in that moment is if I love God. And I say, your rule is right for me here. Your rule to say no to this is right. And so when I'm tempted to say something to someone that's hurtful, fear of people thinking bad of me will only get me so far. Because I'll get to a point where I just won't care. But a love for God will carry me through that temptation. And so my prayer is that we love God supremely. And that is the key to the spirit using in our lives to have self-control. So let me bring this to a close. What can we take away from this sermon today? I have four things. I'm just going to put them really quickly. Number one, we have a sin problem, okay? The fact that self-control is not natural to you or me speaks to our fallen condition, so we need to embrace that fact. Our sin problem is enormous. We got to accept that. Number two, we have a wonderful Savior. The fact that self-control is possible speaks to the greatness and power of our Savior. Number three, the affections of our heart need to be transformed, The path to self-control is to have our affections changed by the Holy Spirit. So what is it that you love? What brings you most joy? That will determine if the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. And finally, self-control will be achieved as we love God and His Word more fully. And so my prayer is that we, as we close this this series from Galatians chapter 5, my prayer is that we love God supremely above everything else. And then when we do that, these things are going to just be evident in our lives. Not perfectly. We'll have to repent. We'll have to forgive each other. We'll have to ask God's forgiveness. And He will. But He will be at work in us. So that's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a church that loves your law. Not just... We don't love reading your Bible or reading the Bible, reading your word, or not just a love to um, uh, know facts about it. But Father, I pray that we would love it. Like David said in Psalm 119, I love your law because I trust you. If you're putting rules upon me, it is for my good and it's because you love me. And so I accept it. I pray that we would get to that point. And then we would see self-control evident in our lives. Lord, would you receive glory and honor because it is due to you. In Christ's name, amen.